Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health. With Richard, talk to me, guy. And, as I say every week, Sherry Edwards is off working on the soundhealthportal.com. I'd suggest going to the soundhealthportal.com and scrolling down past the campaigns, past the possibilities of what you could be doing, and scroll down to the bottom and click on videos and pick out a subject that you're interested in and watch Sherry do a live a recording of Sherry doing a live webinar online with somebody through the whole process of taking the voice print, a recording of the voice, and then running it through the software and seeing the reports that get generated from the software and the kinds of information, highs, lows, just all sorts of stuff. Because then it just is going to make so much more sense than me blathering on about what it can do and what it does just to see it just gives you a lot more information because it is a very visual system now. She's come up with amazing charts and graphs and correlations, and it's just a great way to learn about the Sound Health Portal. Then you can go back and look at campaigns, which I'll let that be a surprise when you discover those. But go to the soundhealthportal.com, scroll down to videos, and watch a demo. It really helps tremendously. To hear and share replays of the show about 20 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, you can go to talktomeguy.com, all words, scroll down that page, and the top, at the episodes link, you'll see this show there in about, uh, about 30 minutes usually, with complete show notes, all the links that we talk about during the show. If we refer to any of Dr. Goitin refers to any articles or anything, I'll put links in the show notes. And you can also, with that that page or that site has been designed to be very mobile friendly. So if you want to listen to it on your phone or some other kind of portable device, it works really well. You just scroll to that page and at the bottom of the show notes is a player that you can listen to right there and or links to everything from Audible to Google Podcasts and iOS Podcasts, many of the aggregators. And you can listen to the show there if you have a podcast aggregator that you prefer, which is just fancy talk for an app. And also at the bottom of that screen at the corner of the show notes is a little microphone. You can click on that and you can leave me a message saying, I have a question about this, or could you give me more information about how to contact the doctor, or you want to suggest somebody for a show, any of those things. So you can find that all at talktomeguy.com. With that, Laura Goitin, MD, is a Harvard-trained physician specializing in intensive care and lung medicine in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the founding medical director of Clinician-Directed Performance Improvement, a hospital quality program. Her professional interests include quality improvement in healthcare and of life care the training of new doctors, physician burnout, and improving communication with patients and families. She's an editorial board member and a frequent writer for the medical journal JAMA, Internal Medicine, and also writes in the lay press, including the New York Review of Books. Dr. Goitin states, In my experience, patients often don't get the explanations they desperately need. My goal is to help patients to better understand their own health and medical care. 
My hope is that better understanding will give patients and their families the ability to ask the right questions of their own doctors and to develop a sense of purpose and effective self-advocacy. Dr. Goitin joins us to talk about her new book, The ICU Guide for Families, Understanding Intensive Care and How You Can Support Your Loved One. Welcome, Dr. Laura. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. As we were talking a little bit about, about backstage, I've had experience both on a personal level and a familial level with ICU, so I am thrilled to see this book because what took you so long to write it? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really, it's a wonderful thing. I, I, nobody thinks about it until they need it, this kind of information. And I just think this should be on every bookshelf and every family should have this as a a reference as an idea because at some point, this is my perspective, I think at some point most of us are going to either be in an ICU or have a loved one in the ICU. And it's sure good to have some information before you go in because it's a whole different world. Yes, that, it is. <laughs> it's really amazing. How did you, how did you choose to be an intensive care physician, what was it that drew you to that field? Mm-hmm. There are a number of things that are special about intensive care. Um, for one thing, the medicine and the physiology is so interesting. Unlike many other parts of healthcare, you really have a lot of resources at your disposal. It's an embarrassment of riches. You have uh, enough nurses, you can get tests in time, you really um, have some control and um, ability to really understand what's going wrong with your patient. So I appreciated that. But I think most of all, being an ICU doc feels very central you are regularly a part of the most intense, critical moments of uh, patients' lives. And although often you may not meet a patient because they're asleep or sedated, um, you get to know them in a very intimate way through conversations with families mostly. Um, and especially when you're making very big picture decisions about how aggressive to be with care, um, how long to continue life support, you find out things like, do they believe in God? Do they value their life? How do they feel about being uh, dependent on others? So you get to know patients very well, and everything trivial, all the small talk kind of falls away, and you're left really in the heart of what matters. And um, that's a a privilege that I think doesn't really exist almost anywhere else. You you talked about that in the ICU guide, and that really popped out for me when I was reading about that, because as I say, further down, I'll, I'll talk about my experiences. But it really is a place of, in a certain interesting and or possibly weird way, it's like privileged air in the sense that it's a very Mm -hmm. different. I've been in hospitals 
I've been in hospices. I've been around a lot of healthcare people. And this particular area does seem, it is very privileged. And having been in an ICU myself, it really is, as you say, you, you might be, I was, I had 10, 11 years ago, I had a bunch of surgeries and I was in a healthcare facility for a year and I was in and out of the hospital repeatedly. Oh, and sorry. oftentimes, thank you. I'm okay now. Everything's fine. Everything's put back in place. It's all great. Um, <laughs> but at the time, the person oftentimes that I had the most intimate relationship with was my station nurse and or my ICU doctor. I might be drugged or woggy from a surgery. I had 30 hours of surgeries. And I might be coming out, and that friendly pl- person standing there in that moment is the IC- my ICU doctor. And it's a very privileged kind of airspace. It's not like just going to see a doctor. You're really with, that doctor is really with you in that moment. Am I reading that correctly? That it's kind of a Absolutely. privileged place? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I love your description of privileged air. Um, and I think the components of that is that it's, it's a very intense point in your medical trajectory and in your life. And that doctor is... Uh, your closest advocate and ally along along with your family members and the people that are close to you. And that, that team of people becomes very important and hopefully finds a way to work um, very well and in a very focused way on, on your behalf. And that there is something special about that. I want to jump for a moment to... Because this is a well, this is again from my personal story. Your thoughts on the importance of having a person in your I'll call them team people come to visit you or people that are there because they care about you and they're like, Oh my goodness, what's going on? How important is it to have a person with that DPOA, the durable power of attorney? who can actually make a decision rather than we're in the middle of something and we need a decision who's making it? Yeah. Fortunately, fortunately, when I went in, I had people around me who some of them were healthcare workers, and one of them stepped up and said, "You know, we'd known each other for a long time," and she said, "I'll be that person for you if you want." And it was, it was, I can't say relaxing because no part of that was relaxing, but it was a relief in the sense of she knew me well, she knew what I would want or not want. And she did that. It's not complicated, but it's a big deal. So could you talk a little bit about the DPOA? Sure. And it, it helps if that person has been legally assigned in an advanced directive. And I think the reason that that helps is it gives you a chance to have conversations with that person before the event of a critical illness. And that can be um, tremendously helpful to that person when the time comes to serve in that role. And we, we can talk more about that. If there is not someone assigned legally ahead of time, every state does have a default list of priorities of the people in your life and the order in which they would, by default, become 
your health proxy in the event that you were too ill to make your own decisions or to assign someone at the time. Um, so that, that, that does exist, so there is some clarity around that. But it helps a lot if you make your own choice in advance. Sometimes that uh, default order is not what you would want. And again, assigning a proxy in advance gives you the advantage that you can have those conversations ahead of time. And in my experience, in my own personal experience, I've been surprised by some of those conversations that I've had, uh, learning that my loved ones had a different view of what was an acceptable quality of life than I might have thought otherwise. Um, so I do think that the chance to have those conversations ahead of time can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. We were also talking backstage that years ago, my mother was hospitalized and in the ICU with metastasized cancer. And thank you. And she made me the person, the DPOA. And it was hard, but she really chose me. I mean, she really intentionally over my father, over my brother, over other people. She knew that if it came down to the hard decision to let her go, because she was always she was already quite sick by the time she was there. And I knew the physician who was running the ICU, and we talked about that. And so my mother put me in charge. And it gave her that slight sense of like, okay. And at some point before she was drugged because of the pain level, she was in and out of consciousness, that she had that relief of, okay. And she literally told the doctor, don't ask me any more questions, ask him. Right, right. And it was hard, but it did give her a sense of, we had a lot of communication with squeezing the hand, because she was really quite drugged and in quite a bit of pain. But I could bring her back enough to like squeeze my hand or look me in the eye. And it was really a, a sense of, oh, okay, now I can relax and just rest or whatever is happening. And it was an amazing moment. It was not easy and it was tearful, but it was an amazing moment for her and also for myself to be able to know that I could care for the, my loved one, my mother. And for her, it was a sense of, okay, I just am here now and he will help me through this. And it just, I think it's a very powerful thing to have that person available and ready to want to help. Absolutely. What a relief to her to have someone she trusted to be her advocate at that time. And what an honor for you that she chose you to be that person. I think that, you know, as time goes by, particularly for very elderly people or people with um, underlying chronic or terminal illness, families start wondering, would doing all this really still be in accordance with the person's uh, wishes? Um, and at that point, um, people start wondering when enough is enough and whether it may be time to withdraw care. And in those settings, I think often the proxy feels a tremendous burden. 
it really seems like an impossible decision. But I think what people need to realize is these are not monstrous or rare decisions. These are loving and courageous decisions, and they happen all the time. In fact, the majority of people who die in the ICU die because a decision has been made to withdraw care. Mm-hmm. And that's because we really have the ability to keep almost almost anybody technically alive long past the point when they could return to a reasonable uh, quality of life. And no one wants that for their loved ones. So these decisions are common and loving. At some point, uh, the question may become not whether someone will die, but how. And um, at that point, making those decisions uh, is is a very important part of being an advocate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think also something that may be helpful for people in that situation to realize is their responsibility is not to make their own decision, but to represent what they believe their family member would have wanted mm-hmm. um, because they know that family member best. And sometimes that's quite different. Sometimes you know in your heart that the person is ready to let go. Um, But you may hardly be able to bear to make that decision. So sometimes that requires great selflessness, but it also should in some ways take the burden off you. You're not deciding what you want. You are representing what you know they would want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that can be a well, could be. I've seen with other people that I've gone to ICUs with that I wasn't that person, but I might be somebody who is could listen and talk with people. And it's it's tricky. That area gets gray when people have their own specific what they might think should be happening versus what the person wants. That's right. And as you say, that can be a conundrum sometimes. But you, I think you really have to, and I've been in that situation with people saying, no, I know your mom, and she would not want to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's, it's a powerful position, and it needs to be kind of figured out so that you have that person. That was what my mother had, was that sense of, relax and of relaxation, knowing that I would not fight any direction that she would not want me to go. I knew right. I was there to be of service to her. And that's what I did. Right. Not necessarily well, easy. Sure. <laughs> yeah. but no, not easy at all. Not easy yeah. at all. Yeah. And I'm sure I, she would be proud of you. Yes, thank you. I, I think so too. Um, I want to jump back ever so slightly and ask, how common is it to have an illness that requires the ICU? We, we didn't really hear much about ICUs until the pandemic. And now, yep. of course, everybody knows what an ICU is and has seen them and seen doctors and seen all that. But how, on, on a pre-pandemic basis, how common is it to have an ICU, an illness that you know, requires you be in an ICU? Right. Well, about 5 million people are admitted to uh, ICUs in the United States every year. And 
So what that really means is about, if you just do some simple number crunching, about a third of us can expect to have one of the five people close to, closest to us admitted to an ICU over the next five years. Mm. So the ICU really does end up touching most of us, whether directly as a patient admitted ourselves or, or through people close to us. And of course, that's only uh, increased during the pandemic. Thank goodness we're coming out of this last wave and our ICUs are becoming more manageable, but um, it was really touching a lot of us um, at the height of this last wave. So, um, so it's definitely a large part of all of our lives and very hidden from view until you, until you get there. You had asked me what took me so long to write this book, and truthfully, I've been wanting to write this book for 15 years um, because I have always felt a, a tremendous sympathy for those family members in the waiting rooms, maybe even more than for the patients who are often, as I said, asleep or sedated. Um, those family members are just really vividly um, uh, suffering, and um, they are completely overwhelmed by what is a very alien and intimidating environment to most, and in desperate need of explanations, which their very busy um, ICU doctors and nurses may not have time uh, to give as thoroughly as they would like to. Um, so I, I think family members are really in quite a bit of need in addition to needing those explanations, they really need to know how they can help. They feel very powerless, very peripheral. They know that their loved one is in danger and in the hands of strangers. They feel like they should be doing something or watching out for something, but they don't know what. But there is a lot that family members can do uh, to help. And um, so part of the purpose of, of this book was to give um, family members a, um, a sense of agency and, and purpose and an understanding of how they can take on their very central role. Mm -hmm. And you really, I'm, I'm going to jump all the way back to chapter one, which is the first 24 hours, waiting <laughs> it should actually, yeah. If that was animated, it'd be like a blinking red light because it is really <laughs> waiting, waiting, waiting. And I think that from my experience and, as I say, having been with others, I think the first time you're in an ICU is the most stunning part of the experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that death isn't traumatic or can't be stunning as well, but I'm just saying the amazing amount of action that's happening and you're told to sit and wait and then you see your loved one whisked away and, or in my case, I was that loved one whisked away looking at like the scene in the movie where you're looking at the fluorescent light going over your head really fast. Um, yeah. And you come out of, you know, if you're in a, not necessarily a coma, I, I had passed out one time and you wake up and you're like, What? Am I in an alien ship? Where am I? And mm -hmm. your loved ones are out there having no clue as to what's happening and not knowing what to ask or where to go. And you really do talk about the, the things that they can do for the first 24 hours, which can benefit everybody. So I think, again, this is, I think this should be on every shelf 
in every den in America, if people still have dens. Well, um, thank you. Yeah, so I, talk a little about all that first 24 hours, because that's a really sure. key, I think that's a key time. And it's a time when, as I say, it's really stunning. You're just stunned because you're there and there's a lot of running around, a lot of activity, and not that many people are talking to you because they're trying, they're working on saving your loved one. So what can right. they, what can we be doing during that first 24 hours? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that most people's first experience um, when they arrive is waiting in a, usually in a waiting room somewhere, not really knowing what's going on with their loved one, wondering why they can't see their loved one, why no one is coming to talk to them. It is an extremely distressing experience for a, a lot of families and you know, they, some families, understandably, I think, start to react by getting very angry and mistrustful um, of of the setting that they're in. Um, but it's important to realize that people are not ignoring your loved one. They are usually working very hard to stabilize your loved one, to get them um, out of the acute danger um, and the way we often think of stabilization is getting vital signs into a safe range, getting the blood pressure up high enough or, or into a normal range, getting the heart rate into a normal range, the blood oxygenation into a, a normal range. Then once a patient is stabilized and has the initial monitoring and treatments put in place, then there will be time for conversation and explaining to you um, what is happening. So um, I just ask people to understand that um, your doctor and nurse really very much want to speak to you and bring you up to date. If they're not there, it's because they are busy and very possibly busy with your loved one who's just been admitted to the ICU and may not be. Um, in terms of what you can do during that period of time, run down to the gift store and get a notebook. <laughs> you will be um, in shock, you will be exhausted, and your memory um, uh, for details will not be as good as it might otherwise be. And there will be a lot of information coming at you. So. Um, either a notebook or if you prefer to do it digitally, that's fine, but have um, some means to start writing things down. Um, questions that you may have, things that you remember about your loved one's presentation, the symptoms that they had, um, recent events in their medical history that may have bearing um, that you may want to explain to the team when they finally are able to come talk to you. Um, if um, there is someone with you who can run and get a copy of the advanced directive or a medication list or the medication bottles and bring them in. That will be very helpful to the team. Letting your primary care physician or your, the patient's primary care physician know what's happening so that they have an opportunity to, um, to talk with your ICU team um, as soon as possible is also helpful. So there are, there are a number of things that you can do before you ever meet to speak with someone. And then, of course, 
once people come to talk to you, there are a lot of other ways that you'll be asked to help and in terms of um, perhaps giving consent for procedures or deciding about code status. There are a lot of things in that first 24 hours when you can um, really play a central role. And I try to um, walk you through that um, in the first chapter of the book, which as you say is about the 24 hours you know, in a targeted towards a, a reader who may be very tired and want just the bare minimum of, it, of information. And it seems like there's a fine line, again, from my own experience. Now, in, in my case, when I was working with my mother, I knew the doctors, so we already knew each other. Mm-hmm. Because I'd worked and done some work in her offices as a technician, yeah. a software technician. And so we already had some kind of rapport going on. How do we walk the line of, and, and how do we communicate with the ICU crew or the lead doctor mm-hmm. in a way that's not, and there's, cause there's an edge of that. I think, again, having watched people in this, there's times when people I think are reacting harshly to the doctor because they're in fear and they're terrified and in shock mm-hmm. themselves. And it comes yeah. out as anger. Yeah. And they don't mean to be. So how do we, what is that, I'll call it a dance of communicating and, and as possible being helpful. And as you say, writing stuff down, that is so important because you're going to hear 9,000 things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, even if it's clearly explained, it's a lot and writing it down because by the time they get to the third one, you're going to be like, what was that again? Yeah. So making notes, but how do we communicate? How do you recommend communication? Yeah. Well, one of the things to write down is the names of the people involved. Most people are shocked by how many different people are involved in an Mm -hmm. ICU patient's care. It's a very large multidisciplinary team um, involving doctors, nurses, um, physical therapists, speech therapists, nutritionists, uh, case managers, um, really a very large um, group of people. And you have the right to know who each person entering the room is, and you should ask them directly. They, they will be busy and rushing and may or may not uh, introduce themselves well. Um, but ask them not only their name, but their role and keep a record of that. I, I think it is important to recognize that there is one person who is uh, in charge uh, legally as well as in fact, and that is um, called the physician of record or colloquially the ICU doctor in, in a teaching hospital. They'll be referred to as the attending physician. And that person coordinates the care for the whole team. So first of all, knowing who your team is and who is in charge is very helpful to communication. As you said, it's really a dance because um, the relationship is one-sided in the extreme. The, um, the ICU team has all the information um, and the understanding of the environment, which you don't have, and control over the one thing that's most important to you at that moment, and that is the health of your loved one. So it's a very vulnerable position to be in, and I think a lot of people are very concerned 
that the ICU team like them. You had mentioned the kind of defense mechanism of getting angry, and that's certainly a very common coping mechanism, sort of going on the offensive, even if you're not quite sure how, um, just feeling like you need to be in battle mode. But another uh, coping mechanism is being excessively deferential and um, and uh, uh, trying to trying very hard to make the the team like you as a family. Um, and my heart goes back to goes out to people in who have both reactions. Like I can understand them both. I think you should understand that really it doesn't matter that much if um, if your team likes you. Um, they are very um, dedicated professionals who take very seriously their commitment to the patient. They will give your loved one their best care. Um, it is important um, to communicate well because you have important information um, and you can really play an important role. And that's hard to figure out how to do because doctors and nurses are so busy. So you, you want to find times to communicate, but you don't want to bother them. And, and learning how to walk that tightrope is very difficult. And I have a number of suggestions that I go through in detail um, in my book, uh, which we can talk about more now if you would like. I want to I ask you, yes, that's perfect. And I want to lead in by you talking about the first time somebody comes into, so the, let's say the head nurse or somebody comes to say, oh, would you like to see your loved one now? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the very first time you walk in, and because somebody took a picture of me the very first time they came to visit me, and it's like Star Trek. I mean, mm -hmm. you are all other, everything's hardwired. Star Trek would be all blue. Yeah. But you're all hard, you know, you are wired. You've got tubes, you've got hoses, you've got bags, you've got machines that are blinking. Yep. And it is, again, stunning. Yeah. Because it's all like, you know, things are blinking red sometimes if levels are off or your oxygen, you know, just everything that's happening. Yeah. Is it appropriate is not the word I want, but is it okay for you to say to somebody, could somebody tell me what all this is? You know, not, not very, not each thing specific, but is it okay to ask somebody on the team to say, could you just explain what these things are now that we're out of maybe the crisis mode? Is this after the first 20, I'm suspecting this is after the first 24 hours where mm -hmm. they've gotten the person stabilized and they're trying to figure out what the next step is. Yeah. But is that, yeah. can we do that? Of course, um, and and I agree with you. When when people first come into the room, it's very shocking. Um, patients may be, uh, you know, surrounded by equipment um, with numerous tubes and lines um, across their body. Um, there are alarms sounding, lights blinking, people kind of rushing in and out of the room, uh, doing work around the person. I think thing to do is not to let yourself be alienated from your loved one in that moment. Your loved one is the same person they've always been under all that equipment, and they need you more than they ever have. 
your place is right at the bedside. So ask the nurse, may I pull up a chair or will I get in your way? You can always, um, you know, move uh, to the side if the nurse needs to be there in the moment to do something for the patient. But then take your seat again and hold the whole patient's hand. Um, if, um, you know, unless you're unusually uh, and sort of violently clumsy, you won't dislodge anything. Everything's taped into place. So even if it means putting your hand over a catheter or some sort of wire or tube, hold the patient's hand. And even if they appear to be asleep, talk to them as if they were awake. That's uh -huh. good for you. And I think it may be good for them. We don't know how much Patients who are not conscious because of sedation or critical illness may be hearing or understanding, um, but I always assume they understand every word. Um, I think at the very least, they may be able to hear the sound of your voice. They are very powerless, unsure of what's going on. They may be confused. So just providing orienting, soothing conversation, saying, this is what ha happened. This is where you are. This is the name of the hospital. These are the people who are in the room. This is your nurse's name. Maybe telling them what's going on at home. You know, so-and-so is taking care of the dog. Um, just providing them soothing, orienting conversation and talking to them and, and not allowing yourself to feel marginalized by all the equipment. It's just equipment. The important thing is is your loved one um, and you being there for your loved one. And I'd like to jump in and just, and for the listeners, chapter one is amazing uh, because there's so much information here about the instruments, the tubes, the hoses, the tape, the, the eyes are taped, why they're taped, just so much great information here that gives you, I know it would be hard to hand this to somebody waiting in the ICU, but it's kind of like they should have this as they sit down <laughs> and read yep. this because it gives you a lot of information that would help you freak out slightly less because having been sub having both dealt with somebody who is in the ICU and having been in the ICU myself, it's amazing to have all this information here and go, well, what's that for? What's the, What's this... What's the EKG, ECG machine showing me? What's it, you know, just like all this information that's really, not that you're going to memorize it all, but at least you have some familiarity going in. So you're not, you're freaking out maybe just a small amount less. I think it's very powerful. Well, thank you. And that, that's really my hope and my challenge is to figure out how to get this book to people before they know they need it, um, because I agree those first 24 hours are so shocking, and um, I, I really think uh, people need some orientation. I had a great um, illustrator, Lori O'Keefe, who did a terrific picture for me of um, someone in the ICU where I've labeled all the equipment and given a brief uh, description so that, you know, as, as you sit, it's a sort of a, a paradox because you're sitting with a patient, uh, you know, visitation policies permitting these days. But mm -hmm. if you're able to sit there with the patient, it feels so intense and so shocking. But at the same time, 
there's a lot of downtime where you're sitting with someone who may be unable to communicate with you. And during that time, I, I, I hope it would be helpful to people to have my book and be able to kind of read about the environment around them. It's an amazing sketch. I've been that person. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. And it's truly, you know, to come in and visit a loved one and see all this is just overwhelming. And it's it's not going to make the shock any less. Well, no, I think it actually would. But it's just going to have a sense of, oh, that's what this is. Mm-hmm. That's what that does. What are the squeezy things in the leg it. for? What is what are the yeah. squeezy things in the leg for? For goodness sake, what is that? You know, yeah. um, just everything to have an idea of what's going on. And again, from my own experience with my mother, my mother was way out. She was very morphined because mm-hmm. of the pain. But to go in and sit with her and hold her hand. And after a couple of minutes, she would be able to, what I would call surface enough to sort of turn her head, kind of open her eyes and squeeze my hand. Now that might take an hour, but she could do it. And I would just be there with her talking, talking about stuff, talking about who's going on, who's saying hello, that kind of thing. But it's very powerful. And I know it's hard sometimes for people to do this. I've been with people who've had a hard time going in and visiting because it's so, oh my God. It is, oh my God, and yet being with that person, I think, can be very powerful. Is there research on that, looking at recovery rates of people who have people come in and talk to them and hold their hands? There is some research that shows that rates of delirium are less among patients who have um, family presence. Delirium is a um, a sort of a um, a distorted state of understanding of your surroundings um, and uh, lack of attention. It can come with agitation or psychosis, um, hallucinations, um, and, and various other manifestations. Very common in patients in the ICU Um, probably from a combination of factors, the underlying medical illness, and then also the medications, the sedatives, and and we now know that using less sedatives is um, generally better for patients, um, um, among other things, in reducing delirium. Um, And also, it's because of the environment. They're sleep deprived. There's this constant sensory stimulation from lights, alarms. So over time, these things cause delirium very frequently in in patients. It helps a lot to prevent delirium, to have a family member sitting there with you, anchoring you back to your reality and your identity, reminding you who you are, um, telling you stories about things that are familiar to you, helping to orient you. Um, so so in, this is one way that families can be incredibly um, um, helpful to patients. And are there ways that we, the loved ones, the other side of the loved ones, can help the ICU team guard against common complications of ICU, ICU care? I'm guessing that that would be in the category of, does that need, can that hose come out yet? 
or you know that that kind of thing can we be involved that much that's exactly right um so um the the beginning part of an icu admission is often focused on treating the factor that brought you in there and the the physiologic consequences on the body um, the manifestations of critical illness as time goes by um, the focus of care and that is treated and you're you're really um, waiting for the body to heal supporting the body while it heals um, the the emphasis becomes on preventing complications because the longer you're there um, mostly immobile with tubes and lines uh, bypassing your normal um, host defenses against infection like if you have a catheter going through your skin that's a portal of entry for bacteria so you know ICU patients who have um, many medications many tubes and lines are mostly immobile um, can develop complications that may really set them back and be quite dangerous. Um, and these include things like hospital-acquired infections, um, mm-hmm. uh, infections of central lines, which are like large IVs, infections of uh, catheters in the bladder, infections of your lungs that travel down the breathing tube from the ventilator. So um, the focus becomes on preventing complications, and families really can play a very helpful role in that. Um, I know this not only from being an ICU doctor, but from being um, uh, my stepfather was in in the ICU um, very seriously ill, and I realized how much I was focusing on trying to play a role in preventing these kind of complications for happening and just how important that suddenly was to me. And that's really affected the way I've been an ICU doctor ever since. You don't need to be a doctor to help with this. So what I found myself doing, for example, was every day I would ask the nurse, do you think we really still need that central venous catheter, that very large IV in place. Do you think the Foley catheter could come out today? How is he doing on the ventilator? Does it look like he's ready to breathe on his own? Could we do a trial of um, having him breathe independently to see if he could come off the ventilator? Trying to get the the plastic out of his body, basically. Mm. Mm. And these, you know, you obviously are not going to be able to judge whether these things are, whether it's time for these things to come out, you're going to have to trust your team, but you can ask those questions. And I recommend that, that you do that every day. Ask why, why do I know, say nurse, I know these are a risk for infection. Why are they still in place? Do they need to be here? Um, and, and just see what the answer is. I really do believe that because I was so pesky on this issue, mm-hmm. uh, these tubes and catheters came out uh, probably days earlier than they might have otherwise. Um, and my um, stepfather did not develop a, an infection from them, um, which I'm mm-hmm. very grateful for. 
And then the other complications that family members, I think, can help to prevent are complications of um, delirium, which we already discussed a little bit, just being there as that orienting person, um, but also mobility. So being immobile for prolonged periods of time really increases the risk of many different kinds of complications. So most ICUs understand this and are very active trying to get patients moving as fast as possible, even if that's only sitting in an upright position for a while or passively moving arms and legs. Um, it's, that's very time consuming for nurses. The patient needs to be awake and sometimes in a position where they require close supervision. And especially these days when healthcare workers are so busy, um, it can be tough for nurses to encourage mobility as much as they know they need to be doing that. Family members can help by being present just at the bedside to help supervise, um, to allow the nurse to be able to run next door to give another medication to a different patient and keep an eye on that patient um, while they're awake and maybe sitting in a chair. So helping to be present um, and encourage mobility is something that families can do that, that has a big effect. And is there a time when, even when in the ICU, that you're, the, the patient is conscious enough and able to sit up enough that it's helpful for a loved one to take them and wheel them around in a wheelchair. They don't necessarily have to get up and ambulate, but just be out and see other people and maybe look outside a window and, and have a little of like, oh, because it's a very foggy. Absolutely. I, say, I, had, I had a lot of surgeries, and so it, there's that phase where you're very, what I would call, phasey. Yes. It's very, you know, like, wow, where's Rod Serling? What's going on? Where am I? <laughs> um, and it's really helpful to be with a loved one, but also to be rolling around. And, and even the loved one has to understand that you might, they might ask you questions. Oh, I'll just say, so somebody would ask me a question and I would have no memory. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's transitory. Yep. Or I might start talking about something. I've been accused regularly of talking about some chocolate cake that I thought was amazing, and I was telling nurses about it. And I remember none of this. I know the chocolate cake. I remember the chocolate cake. Mm -hmm. The trick yeah. was buttermilk. Uh, but yeah. I, and I guess I told a lot of people this, but I do not remember any of that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there is a lot of amnesia, both because of um, the, the critical illness and also because of some of the medications, which have a direct amnestic effect. Um, benzodiazepines, for example, are uh, famous for um, uh, uh, sort of blocking memory, for better or for worse. Um, and what you also sort of got at in, in the initial part of what you were just saying is the connection between mobility and preventing delirium. So being mobile and up and about does seem to help to prevent uh, delirium uh, from setting in. And, and delirium is so distressing and associated with its own complications. So that's really worth doing. 
Um, and as to how family members can help with that, that's going to vary from ICU to ICU according to their policies. For example, you know, rolling someone around in a wheelchair um, in, the, in ICUs that may not be um, permitted for various reasons. But certainly getting a patient up to a chair, getting them facing out of a window, um, things, providing um, uh, some change in scenery and getting them moving does help to prevent that, that fog that you described. And it's really just even seeing other people, seeing other humans, remembering you're mm-hmm. a human, remembering it's like, oh, wow. Because yep. when you're hooked up and you're in that phasey f- space, you're in a certain way you're less you're maybe physiologically you're more stressed but i think mentally in some ways the person that is the patient is less stressed because you're kind of out you're just in that floaty stage of coming back from i had a bunch of surgery so coming back from that coming out of the anesthesia coming out of the fog and to so just to be sitting in a chair and rolling around it's like oh wow i remember this place (laughs) yep yep Yep, you're it's very amazing. connected and very isolated. Um, and the more you can interact with people, uh, change position, uh, move your setting, the, you know, the, the faster you'll reconnect to the world. It's an amazing thing. And how uh, I wasn't, I, I can't help myself. I want to talk about end of life. Mm-hmm. How do we? How do we gather and talk about that? How do we do we get do we gather as the family group, so to speak, at first and have that conversation, then bring in the attending physician or the can we consult with a one of the doctors or the nurse or you know somebody that we've possibly established rapport with if the person's been there for a couple of days? How do we yeah. have that start at least have I'm not trying to pull the plug on somebody. That's not what I'm saying. I just believe that people have the right to like hold their hand up and go, I've had enough. I have to go now in a certain way. And I think that needs to be an actual conversation. And yes, it's sad. And yes, it's hard. I've had this very conversation. Yes, it's sad. Yes, it's hard. But the sense of relief with my mother was like, oh, thank you. Truly a moment of tear. And then like she was gone or she drifted off. So yeah. how do we how do we start that? That's such a hard area to talk about. People have such resistance to that, but I think it's so important that it be talked about. How do we do Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Well, I think the first um, thing to understand is that this is usually a many conversations. Uh, you know, not just one, and there 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 should not be a rush for these decisions. So um, taking as much time as you need is important. There are, you know, to simplify, two sides that need to be considered. And one side is what you know about that person's values, what they felt gave their life meaning, um, how they wanted to live and to die. Um, And these are things your doctors likely don't know. Maybe if you've had a long-term primary care physician, they could certainly help contribute to that kind of conversation. 
but this is something that the family needs to discuss. Um, and then there's the side of what is this person's prognosis? What kind of, uh, what are the, what is the likelihood that they will survive? But then beyond that, and this, this part I think gets short shrift sometimes, is what kind of life expectancy, um, or sorry, what kind of uh, quality of life can they expect um, after, after their illness? And, you know, these, these discussions are, are hard in part because um, sometimes are, are, um, there's so much variability that it's very difficult to give a firm prognosis, a, a very sure prognosis. But you need to be having those conversations and understanding what's most likely. Um, when you look at um, patients who are among the sickest of the sick, that is, they've been on prolonged life support, meaning like a ventilator for two weeks. Um, if you look at just that group of patients, they still, most of them will survive to discharge from the ICU, but they will have a long, hard year. Um, most of them will not go home, uh, at least initially. They'll go to another facility. Um, most of them will be transferred from place to place at least four times during that year. Um, and most of them will, at the end of that year, um, if they survive, uh, be dependent on others for much of their care. Now, about a third of them will not make it through that year. Once they are sort of, I don't, I don't want to sound coarse, but kind of weeded out, the, in the following couple of years, things start to look better. And by the third year, those that have survived are fully independent. So if you kind of can make it through that initial testing period, you know, things start to look better and um, people can get back to a full recovery. But it is not a sure thing, and it's a hard year. And people really need to understand um, that um, with, um, when they're making these kinds of difficult uh, decisions. And that's something to speak very frankly with the physicians about. Um, family members and physicians are likely to overestimate the, the quality of life um, after uh, prolonged life support. So, you know, it's, it's something to, to keep in mind as you're making these very difficult decisions. As to how to initiate these conversations, just do it. If it's crossed your mind, it's time to talk about it. You don't have to commit to anything. Just um, go to your physician, ask Ask to have a family conference. That's often the best way to approach this. Uh -huh. And say, you know, I sure don't want to give up on my mother if it's not the right time. But I need to know, you know, should we be starting to think about whether, whether enough is enough? And, um, um, you know, what, um, what she would have wanted in this case. And just 
start talking. In my experience, once you once you open that conversation, it's like the floodgates open, and everybody's been thinking about it. Your your mm-hmm. doctors, whole family, um, and it and it becomes easy to discuss and very important to discuss. And I think it's really I think it's important to have the conversation, and I think it's also having been this person. I think it's really important that there is that person who has or has had a relationship or whatever we want to call it with the loved one, the patient, and knows what they want and is willing yeah. to express that even against the odds of like, but we can't, but da, 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 da. no, this yeah. is what she, you know, again, in my mother's case, I knew what she wanted. She was very clear with me what she wanted. It was not popular. It was not a popular decision, but I knew what she wanted. And she right. told me. And I was the person who was going up against some of our closest friends saying, no, that's not what she wants. And they, right. it was not popular. Years later, right. everybody said like, oh, you were probably right. But yeah. it's, a tough, it's a tough thing. So I think it's good to have that conversation. Like you say, everybody's thinking about it. Nobody wants to say it. That's right. Um, but I can just, just remember most of the people who pass away in the ICU do so after these conversations. These conversations are the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing binding about having a conversation. There's nothing, there's nothing disloyal about having that conversation. You are trying mm-hmm. to make sure you're making the best decisions for your loved one. So start talking about it. You may decide, look, this person is a fighter and would want to give it their all no matter what the odds, um, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, the result of your conversation is open, but have the conversation. And how, how nice for you that you knew what your mom would have wanted. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the gifts. Um, having conversations with your proxy ahead of time can bestow is that they have clarity um, and support, especially in those situations where others uh, might disagree. Mm-hmm. And again, we don't have time now to go into this at length, but I really recommend the book. And if you only read the chapter where you talk about a comfortable death, mm-hmm. I think that is such a, you don't hear that kind of phrase often. And I think it's so incredibly powerful. That's really what my mother advocated for with me before she was ICU'd. If I'm going to go, I want to be, you know, comfortable as possible. And that's That's really an honoring that you're really honoring the person. Yes, death is hard, but you're really honoring the person's wishes. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think that's a barrier to some people in making what they may feel in their heart is the right decision about withdrawing life support is that they're Mm -hmm. afraid that there may be discomfort that the person may feel like they're suffocating uh, if the ventilator is withdrawn. But we do have the ability to keep people completely comfortable as they pass. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is one of, you know, most, most people really don't want to die in an ICU. They want to die peacefully at home. Um, yeah. But one advantage of, of dying in the ICU is that um, we can uh, make very sure that the person is completely uh, comfortable. And that, that's very important 
to have clarity about that. If the time comes to withdraw life support, the goal has shifted and you need to be clear that the primary goal has become giving the person as um, respectful, peaceful, and comfortable a death as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I can't believe we're at the time where I have to ask you, there's so much more to say there. There may be a part two about this. Um, I think death and dying is such a thing. I, that sounds like a simplistic statement, but it really is. We all are born, we all die. And yet we have the hardest time talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. trying to push it. I'm not saying, you know, oh, death is great. But I think we need to honor death. It's a, it's a real, it's, I, I like ancient cultures where it was a ritualized event and it was honored and people drummed and they wept and they scuffed in the dirt and they sang and they chanted and, you know, whatever the symbol is of honoring that rather than just being sad, it's a transition for a person. And I think it's a really powerful thing. Absolutely. And I will say that I have seen some really beautiful deaths. Uh, mm-hmm. in the ICU, even in the ICU. Um, and they involve um, dignity and control. Um, the, the patient or their advocates and the family have um, understood the situation and um, accepted death and made intentional decisions around how it happens. Um, there's family uh, closeness, grief, is is a good thing. It's the other side of the coin from love. So the best deaths have grief in the room. Um, and, and as we talked about compassion, keeping the patient completely comfortable, um, even if the necessary sedatives hasten death, um, mm-hmm. having a lot of clarity about uh, keeping the patient comfortable and letting them pass in a way that's uh, respectful to them. Now, I should say, because we, we've talked a lot about death, the vast majority of people in the ICU survive. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, the, the rate of death in ICU is maybe 10 to 15 percent. Um, so I, I don't want to be too, too gloomy. But, um, <laughs> right. <laughs> the ICU um, has some wonderful um, stories of life in it, too, but but there, there are also beautiful deaths in the ICU, and I hope my, my book helps people to approach both of those outcomes. I think it really does. It's a great it's, – it's tricky to say this because it's, it's not a subject people really want to talk about, but it's a great read. I mean, it really is a great journal for the information, the process just the whole thing and it's a world of you know this is like a manual for life or and or death and it, and it's i'll say funny because i don't have a better word it's as you said it's only 10 percent of the people that go into icu die there that's not a lot but we seem to think that like oh you're in the icu ah! yes it's ah! but it also can be then you come out the other side and you re- rehabilitate and you're okay but I think death needs to be talked about more. Yeah. Well, there's, I, you know, it's, it's certainly, if you're in the ICU, chances are you're, you're very ill. And I think, you know, you come out and you're okay. It's true in some cases. 
it's important to recognize a lot of people have very lingering, you know, effects and disabilities that take a long time to recover. Some people may not fully recover at all. So it, mm-hmm. it certainly packs a punch, but there yeah. are a lot of happy stories. Um, we can we can do a lot of good uh, for patients in the ICU, um, including helping them uh, to pass if it's their time uh, in a way that is respectful and comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where would you like people to find your book and more information about you? Well, my book is um, available through multiple sellers, um, including, of course, Amazon, um, but also independent booksellers and online and um, directly from the publisher, which is uh, Roman and Littlefield. My website is www.medicalexplainer.com, and there's a link uh, to purchase uh, the book uh, there. That was really great, Dr. Laura. This is not an easy subject, but I'm happy to dive into it again anytime. <laughs> it's a great... Well, it's wonderful. I really appreciate t- the chance to talk about this. It's been a very good conversation, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.